one of the things I always have to say up front is a lot of people don't realize that churches are exempt from the ADA. Yeah, churches and Christian schools lobbied really aggressively when the ADA, when the ADA was going through the process to become a law um, to be exempted from it. And they the, the basic argument was that it was such a cost burden that it essentially it was going to shut down freedom of religion, if you will. It was sort of a their First Amendment rights against, you know, my right to exist um, in public spaces. And so they successfully got an exemption that basically says you can't file an, an ADA complaint against a church or Christian schools that operate on church campuses. Hello there, everyone. How are you? Welcome back to the show. March is coming to a close. I'm on spring break with my family, which was canceled due to COVID-19. And really hope that each and every single one of you are staying safe, doing what you need to do. Just a quick reminder before we get into this. So the show is 197 million percent supported by the patrons of the show. I absolutely love that. I've been approached a few times to do advertisements on the show and I I always get to say no, because to be honest, this is not a money-earning venture, nor do I really want to turn it into one. But the show continues to support itself. I actually had to up the hosting charges. I guess that's what you call it, hosting charges, uh, to be able to actually post this episode. I don't know why, but the episode bandwidth was eaten up this month somehow or another. I, I probably did it wrong. I don't know. To the 54, 57, the number changes every other day or so. Um, I really am so thankful that you support the show, and I would encourage a few more of you consider supporting the show. You all make this thing happen, and I am aware how valuable your time and your money is, and thank you from the bottom of my heart for supporting the show. So today I chatted with Stephanie Tate. So I read Stephanie's book, The View from Rock Bottom, quite a bit of time ago, and actually didn't really think about reaching out to her just because I didn't know how to do it didn't know what to say and uh eventually though i overcame that and reached out to her and i really love the conversation we have i laughed a lot and those are my favorite so in this we cover ableism we cover um the americans with disability act we cover the prosperity gospel i mean we cover a lot and i was really challenged by it and uh, her book as well so I really hope that you enjoy this conversation that I had with Stephanie. Let's get it rocking and rolling. Stephanie Tate, welcome to the Can I Say This at Church podcast. See, we turned it on. It's like a different tone altogether. Um, so, so um, we all do it. We have a speaker voice. Yeah, right? yeah. Like as soon as we start, we get very professional. Although I have friends that tell me I'm a monotone voice for the most part, and I lack inflection, and they say it's either calming or very off-putting. I don't know which it is. I'm the opposite. I'm like <laughs> a very over-the-top rambler, and uh -huh. then I brought a friend to the last speaking engagement that I did who had never heard me speak live. And she was like, it was bizarre. You started talking and I was like, who the crap is that? What is, <laughs> what is coming out of your mouth right now? You sound so like composed. <laughs> I didn't know if that was a compliment or not. <laughs> well, I guess they're used to maybe being allowed to interrupt you. And in that place, they weren't allowed to, or they, or they couldn't because you had the microphone, I suppose. So, so that's true. <laughs> who knows? So, um, I, I'm going to ask you a different question because to be fair, I usually do ask the question that you don't want me to ask you. Um, but I slightly <laughs> do it differently, uh, okay. which causes people to have to pause, but I'm not going to ask you that question at all. So, um, I'm just going to ask you the same question I asked everybody last week. Cause why not? I talked about interviewing 8,000 8, people for a job, actually multiple jobs at my bank. And, and you liked the question, and so I'll ask you. Oh, like no. if, <laughs> so, so when people sit down at the desk across from me, the first, well, the first thing I say is, here's what I am, here's what I do. I do this differently. Here's this HR manual that we have to talk about, and I'll tick those boxes so we don't get sued. However, because this is a multi-million dollar company, I need to hire adults. And so when I say, Stephanie, when I say the word adult, what does that mean to you? What does that mean to you? 
Whoo, that's a loaded question. <laughs> um, I have a hard time answering this, I think, because I live in the world uh, in a disabled body. I mm-hmm. think a lot of people, um, you know, when we introduce ourselves to new people, the most common question you get first, right, is what do you do? Yeah. Everybody wants to talk about what they do and what they're responsible for. And hashtag adulting <laughs> looks very different for me mm-hmm. as a disabled person, right? Like my husband does a majority of the dishes and the laundry and the keeping up around this house. And uh, so it's really hard to answer that question because sometimes for me, adulting doesn't even involve getting out of bed at all that day. Mm. So I'm trying to figure out what that means, I think, in the context of living as a disabled person now. Mm-hmm. Because I can't always define it off what I do ability-wise. Um, I am responsible for two tiny humans. I'm pretty sure <laughs> that puts me in adult status uh, because neither of them are dead yet. So that's good. That's, you did it. It's successful. One point in the win column for me. Um, I don't know. I think a lot of it for me has just been learning to take responsibility for myself and my choices and my actions. Yes. Um but I think, from, you know, like I said, it just has a lot less to do with can you, you know, take out the trash and pay your bills and dress yourself every mm-hmm. day? Because some days the answer for me is no, I can't do those things. And yet I'm still an adult. Yeah. So I know it's a complicated question, but I guess, yeah, it's just personal responsibility at this point. Well, to be fair, that is the correct answer. Because when I oh, say okay. I need so to I hire. I get the job. Yeah, sure. Well, I don't know. <laughs> I don't it, want it. it. Yeah, it's. So it's um yeah you might want it although I don't know that I'm fun or not fun to work for my people seem to enjoy me because I sing a lot at the bank when I'm in a good mood and then when I'm not singing people are like oh crap get out of the way what happened <laughs> run <laughs> yeah but I don't hold grudges or get angry all that ma- all that often but um so uh no usually that's what I mean is I'm not gonna track you down I'm gonna ask you to do a job just, just do the dang job that would be great and don't make me ask you again because. You're an adult. I, I pay you to be here. Well, I pay you. The company pays you. Yeah. Nothing bothers me more when people are like, oh, that's not my job. I'm like, oh, stop it. It is definitely your job because it needs to be. You just finished the Evolving Faith Conference, correct? When was it? Or yeah, Evolve I was there Faith, as Evolving an attendee. Faith. I wasn't speaking or anything. Oh, I, I was just speaking. there attending. No. That was all no. over the places. What is that? Because that's in Denver, right? No, it's not in Denver. Well, it was last year. It moves around. Dang it. So this year it's going to be in Houston. Mm. So what is it? As so attendee? Evolving Faith is probably the biggest, most well-known uh, Christian conference for progressive Christians. Mm. Um, so it was started originally by Rachel Held Evans yep. and Sarah Bessie together. Um, and then they brought in Jeff Chu, who's been an amazing mm-hmm. um, companion on that. And then, unfortunately, Rachel passed away last year. Yep. So now Sarah and Jeff are sort of shepherding this whole community um, that's built up around evolving faith. Mm. Um, so in some ways, it looks a lot like other conferences. You know, there are speakers that have keynotes and there are breakout sessions. And, um, and in other ways, it looks like absolutely no other conference I've ever been to. Hmm. Um, Actually, they brought me on this year uh, as a disability consultant. So um, what that means is last year, the heart and the intent was in all the right places, but the execution didn't always match that in terms of accessibility for disabled attendees. And so recognizing that gap, instead of trying to figure out how to fix that themselves and assuming that they as abled people could just sort of go, oh, we'll we'll know what you need and and we'll fix it and we'll plan for it. Mm -hmm. They hired me, because this is one of the things I do, uh, to be a disability consultant. So I come in and from day one in their planning, they said, before we figure out anything, like, give us your input. What worked last year? What didn't? What would you do differently? And then as they plan different things, I consult with them on how to make sure that there aren't any accessibility barriers, but also how to make sure that they're overtly and intentionally welcoming of disabled attendees from the get-go, right? Hmm. From day one of advertising, they want to make it clear, we want you here. You're a valued part of the body. Please come. And we're going to make sure that this is a positive experience for you where you're not excluded in any way. Well, I'm going to come back to that. So... Um, I'll be real honest with you for a minute. So I've read what you write, 
for many, many, many months. I don't know if it's been years or not. It doesn't matter. Like many people, some of the best people that I know are people that I've met on the internet. And actually, some of my best friends, quote unquote friends, are, have been people that I've met, like, developed massive relationship with that I speak to as often as I do my family from healthier places on the internet, um, mm-hmm. which will not be tonight because I think I read there's a democratic primary debate. And so that <laughs> tonight's not a good night to be on the internet. So I'm glad that I'm doing this instead. I'll watch the highlights tomorrow. Um, but you had said something, well, something that, something that you wrote months ago reminded me of something that Richard Beck, I don't know if you're familiar with Richard Beck or not. He's a professor of psychology at Abilene Christian University. Um, he's one of the first people that I talked to yeah, I actually think I was talking to him while I was putting together a, a, a Christmas present for my kids, like back in 2017 or something like that. But he said something to the effect of disgust and contempt and how churches and humans just are really put off by disgust and contempt. And what we find is that people, we we draw these barriers and boundaries and circles around it. And so he was talking about it in church and the fact that on the stage, we don't allow usually the elderly because it reminds us, like, we just mm-hmm. don't want that and as well as the disabled. And so he has larger ministries to that. And so you wrote something to the effect of, and I, I can't, I'm not going to look on Facebook and try to find it, but you said something to the effect of, oh, I'm going to say it wrong. You probably can remember it. Um, you know, if you're, if you say you value our voice, but you don't give us away on the stage, you don't oh, actually yeah. value, I, I'm saying it wrong. Essentially can, your church is not accessible unless the pulpit is accessible, right? Like it's not enough to have a wheelchair ramp where I can get in the door. Yes. Um, I'm not personally a wheelchair user, but that was sort of the point, right? Of it's not enough to make sure I can get in as an attendee if you've made it really clear that there's no way to get up on the stage. Yes. So what would that look like? Because churches don't do that. Ever since reading that, I've been in probably 20 different churches. Um, One of my favorite things to do, not at my current bank, but at my past one, I was in a historic downtown part of central Virginia. And so I could walk to like a hundred year old Episcopalian church. I could walk Mm -hmm. to a massive Catholic church. I could walk to all these beautiful churches and everywhere I go now, I look and I'm like, yeah, that wouldn't work. That wouldn't work. He has a cane. That's not going to work. They have whatever not going to work. Like you'll you'll even watch like the youth come up after they get hurt because they're going to talk about the mission trip they did, and they can't get up there either. And those are just crutches, temporary. So what would that look like besides just installing a ramp to the pulpit, or maybe just bringing the pulpit down to the ground level? Um, what would that actually look like for a church to enable voices from the disabled? Like what would that actually look like? So. One of the things I always have to say up front is a lot of people don't realize that churches are exempt from the ADA. Really? Yeah. Churches and Christian schools lobbied really aggressively when the ADA ADA was going through the process to become a law um, to be exempted from it. Really? And the, the basic argument was that it was such a cost burden that essentially it was going to shut down freedom of religion, if you will. It was sort of a their First Amendment rights against, you know, my right to exist um, in public spaces. And so they successfully got an exemption that basically says you can't file an an ADA complaint against a church or Christian schools that operate on church campuses. Now, sometimes local building codes will have certain requirements about, you know, you need a a handicap accessible stall in the bathroom or that Mm -hmm. sort of thing. Um, but those very wildly and enforcement works differently there, right? Like once you've passed inspection for your construction of your new church, that's it. Like you're done, right? Like you could, you could basically take the, that accessible stall and you could use it for storage, which I've actually seen done of all kinds of stuff. Mm. And there's no one to stop you. The ADA has teeth, right? Like there's, it's theoretically an enforcement method. It's not great. It's not like a phone number that you can call up. You have to press a suit, but there's a way to enforce it. Um, So churches and Christian schools are exempt from that. And so unfortunately, churches tend to be some of the least accessible places for people with disabilities because Hmm. they don't have to be. And what you described, right? Like there's sort of this reverence and attachment to old churches that have these sort of sacred architecture, if you will, and the feel and the look of that. But the reality is the more traditional the architecture, the more likely it is that it's just horrifically inaccessible. Yeah. 
Um, so that's a constant struggle. I think if churches would even just start, like, I'd love to give you a, a vision of like fully inclusive, holy welcoming spaces, but it's hard to do when some of them, you just can't even literally get in the front door. Like they're yeah. not even doing the bare minimum yet. If I could see more churches hiring disability consultants to come in and say, Hey, here's some barriers that you probably don't even recognize you have. Can you address them? And, and for the record, like it's important that that's paid labor, right? Like you don't just tap your local disabled parishioner yeah. and expect them to come in and do that labor for free, right? Yes. Like, Hey, tell us a whole list of what we can. That's no, like that's not their job. Yes. Um, there are people you can pay to do that. Like that would be a great start. Right. But more than that, I also just think accessibility, like physically is, is important, but what we see on the platform and who we hear quoted in sermons, right? And who we hear taught in our Bible study and in our book groups and in our, that speaks volumes to me as a disabled person too. If yeah. you never ever choose a book written by a disabled author or teach a sermon where you have quotes from a disabled theologian or invite a disabled person to come guest preach, mm. no amount of making sure that I can get in the front door of the pew is gonna be quite enough, right? It's going yeah. to be very clear that you can come and be ministered to. You can receive our our love and our charity and our teaching. Um, you're just not seen as someone who has anything to contribute. I did not know that about the ADA. Is that only, you may not know, is that only Christian churches? Or does that also count for Jewish uh, mosques, uh, Buddhist temple? I don't even know what some I of the words are called. It applies to houses of worship huh. across the board, but I'm not 100% sure. It was specifically Christian. It was the it was the head of the Association of Christian Schools that did like the majority of the lobbying hmm. to say this is putting undue burden on us and we need to be exempted from this. Hmm. And I will just say like if you go read some of what they actually said, it's gross. Hmm. There was there was a lot of really nasty homophobic and ableist stuff all tied in that. Like they kept saying, well, you can't do that because what if people start saying that alcoholism is a disability or being gay is a disability or any of these things that we don't agree with? Because back then, you know, there were people that considered like being trans, for example, yeah. a disability, right? Or a psychological affliction, they would have called it back then. And so the Association of Christian Schools guy basically said, hey, if you make all these rules that say that we can't discriminate against people with disabilities, what if, you know, that makes us have to hire drug addicts and trans people and all these, you know, people that we don't agree with, mm. that is violating our freedom of religion to say, you know, we want to be able to discriminate as much as we want against people we think are sinful. And the huh. law basically didn't want to have to get embroiled in the possible controversy of them fighting that all the way up to the Supreme Court. So they said, Okay, and that they wrote insane. in an exemption. That is insane. And even just the way you sentence yourself, yeah, we, we would like to discriminate against these people. If you would allow us to do that and keep our nonprofit status, that would be great. Yeah, but that's essentially the history, right? Like all of it boils down to, for me, churches fought for the legal right to discriminate against people like me. Hmm. Whatever the reasoning, whatever the logic, whatever the First Amendment argument, the bottom line for most disabled people is churches fought like actively fought and put lobbying and money into the right to discriminate against disabled people. That's, that's gross. Like, wow, that is, that's yeah. a fantastic witness right there. Huh. It's just, huh. wow. That's definitely what Jesus would do. <laughs> no, no. I've, I've read the gospels. I've got a couple copies here. I don't. Yeah. I hear the sarcasm, but, but also no, <laughs> um, but also very much no. What is ableism? So that is a word that honestly I, I hadn't heard until I read, read, whatever, until I saw you begin to speak about it so much. And I picked up a copy of your book. So what is, for those listening, because I'm sure I'm not in the minority there. What is ableism? So ableism is essentially any kind of discrimination 
whether it's active or more unconscious bias against people with disabilities, mm. against disabled bodies. So that can come in the form of accessibility barriers, yeah. right? That people refuse to address. Um, and that can also just come in pervasive attitudes about disabled bodies and disabled people. So it's, yeah, it's really just any kind of discrimination. And again, intent doesn't matter here. It's, it's, it's impact entirely against disabled people and disabled bodies. Hmm. Okay. Can I, so I like to talk about religion and theologies. Are you good if we pivot to that? Yep. Perfect. So what is, I always like to ask kind of a bit of what is the difference between your faith now? Um, I have no idea how old you are, although Facebook told me you had a birthday last week, and I don't tell people happy birthday on Facebook because it's not genuine. But since I can see you, happy belated birthday. Um, I hope Thank it was you. great, but I don't actually know how old you turned. So I what turned is, 35. That's So that's that's a great age. I can remember 35. I, I had, think I'm an actual adult now. Like <laughs> I feel very like this is, feels like official adult so age. So getting back to that first question, and then I'll ask you my question. So my wife and I recently, so when we got married, a while back, her bedroom suit from her like seventh grade, like, yeah, you're in middle school. Let's get you a real, a real <laughs> dresser and a real mirror. And that came with the marriage. Cause I shopped at like below, if there's whatever's below goodwill, there was a place in, in Lynchburg <laughs> called the DAV, um, which is actually for just like, like a place that raised money for disabled veterans, but people would offload the stuff that goodwill wouldn't accept to there. Oh, wow. um, and then I would go buy it and refinish it and do whatever. So that stuff was apparently not cutting the snuff. So we 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 brought her stuff over from from when she was in seventh grade, and we re, like just in December finally upgraded to a bigger mattress, a new mattress that didn't hurt our backs. And then you know, you know like we've been in our careers for fifteen years now. Let's actually get a bedroom suit that's ours. And when it got there, I was like, I really feel like an adult now. Like I mean, we've bought two houses, we have three human beings that we support. We bought multiple cars. We stole one of the other houses. And she's and she told me, she's like, and now you feel like an adult because we bought this bedroom suit. But I don't know. I think it was like a holdover of something that wasn't ours. I don't know. Something about it made me feel like an adult. But um, what? I don't even know why I brought that up. Um, <laughs> <laughs> what? What is some of the differences between the faith that you grew up in and the faith that you call faith now? Hmm. It looks light years different. I mean, mm -hmm. there's there's so many things there. I grew up in a wing of the Baptist church. Um, everybody talks about the Southern Baptist church. I did not grow up Southern Baptist. I grew up in what was called the CBA, the Conservative Baptist Association. Mm -hmm. We split off from the, FB, uh, the SBC because they were not conservative enough for really? us. Yeah. Uh, when you hear about people like boycotting Disney and, you know, Harry Potter was absolutely no go because it was <laughs> totally going to convert your kids to witchcraft and Satanism, like that kind of stuff. Um, it was a very conservative way to grow up. Hmm. I do not relate with that tradition at all anymore. Um, to be in that tradition and do well, you need to be a Republican, first of all, like 110%. That's not yeah, Jesus was Republican as well. Of so, course. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and to be totally honest, you pretty much need to be white. Um, mm. And you definitely need to be able-bodied and without mental illnesses. Um, I think one of the things I heard most in a church, uh, in my church growing up, was the idea of we don't air our dirty laundry in public, hmm. right? Like we, uh, testimonies are all past tense stories, like far enough past tense that it's, you know, oh yeah, back in the day, hmm. I used to be a drug addict, but, but Jesus, so now yeah. it's all okay. We never really heard about what people are going through present tense, unless it was in the context of like gossiping about them. Mm -hmm. Bless her heart. Or we need to pray for so-and-so because here's what I heard. Um, it was very much an imaged based you know, you needed to look like a person of faith. Mm -hmm. And I think the bottom line that we were taught, especially as, as kids and going into like high school age, uh, was this idea of sort of black and white certainty. Like you, there's, there's right and wrong and abs believing in absolute truth meant you needed to believe that the truth we taught you mm -hmm. was absolutely yeah. true. Yeah. And so if you question anything that we taught you, well, now you're just a moral relativist and you don't believe there's any truth at all. Like there was no middle ground there, right? Yeah. Moral relativism was sort of the, the greatest specter they had out there for us was if you question anything before you know it, 
man, you're just going to slide down that slippery slope of believing nothing. And, you know, college is just out to liberalize your kids and, <laughs> and convince them to question everything. So be very careful where you send them. Christian schools are definitely your best bet. I grew up only in Christian education and spent all my spare time in things like Awana and programs like that. I will say that Awana Covey song is very addictive. It's a very <laughs> happy song. Um, we actually <laughs> had like a an offshoot program that doesn't exist anymore that was like, what was it? Oh, Boys Brigade and Pioneer Girls. Huh. So it's like if Awana was gender segregated and then they really <laughs> made it like Boys Brigade was like if Boy Scouts and Awana had a baby and Pioneer <laughs> Girls was like, you know, how to be a good Christian girl. It was, mm-hmm. I don't know. Proverbs 31 for, for, for under 12. Yeah, <laughs> it was different. Um, but then in high school, I started to get sick mm. and we didn't know what was going on with me. Um, I went from really bright and doing well in school and very serious ballet dancer, very in control of my body to struggling to retain any information in school and sleeping 13, 14, 15 hours a day and always Mm. exhausted. And physically my body was just falling apart and we had no explanations for it. And that was the start of a 15 year journey for me without a diagnosis for those 15 years of my body getting worse and worse and worse. So sort of that certainty I had been raised with, right? This black and white, this is how it is. It just didn't make sense for me anymore. My life was falling apart around me. And I felt like I had two options. I either needed to, like God was either going to come in and miraculously heal me and show everybody his power. And I just had to have a really positive attitude until then, Hmm. or it's going to bring some new thing into my life, right? That would show everyone, oh, this was the reason that had to happen to you. Okay. And I waited and waited and waited and it never came. And so all of these people that had been around me my whole life, I felt like very few of them knew how to deal with that. Like they had patience for initially being sick. And then when it went on for years and years and years, they all sort of hit their limit of like, we don't mentally know how to cope with this. So we're just not going to be there for you at all. We're just going to kind of ignore it. Like you just need to have a good attitude and stop talking about it all the damn time because we're over it. Especially when you don't have a diagnosis that they can blame. You know, it's not right. This, it's not that. It's not that. So I don't know how to be mad about nothing, quote unquote. So it all just kind of didn't, I don't know, it didn't click with me anymore. But I didn't really know what else to believe. So I think for a long time, I I tried. I tried to just be positive, encouraging Stephanie 24 seven, you know, the physical embodiment of Caleb radio all the time. (laughs) But that, that splits you like as a person. And I think inside, like on a soul level, it's almost like I fragmented into two people and that's, it's not healthy, right? Like it's, I'm a person who lives with complex post-traumatic stress disorder, and that wasn't diagnosed until much later in life. But I look back and I see the ways that I essentially fragmented myself and disassociated and that the religious faith that I was taught as a child really fed into that fragmentation, Hmm. really made it so that I just couldn't connect these two sides of myself anymore. I was putting on one face for everybody and behind all of it, I, it was almost like I wanted to doubt, but didn't know that I was allowed to. And I was wrestling with myself to even acknowledge those doubts. Hmm. It took years for me to finally hit the point where I was like, I'm just sort of, I can't do this anymore. I'm done. I, I, I'm just going to have to be a hundred percent honest about how much this sucks. I did not sign up for this. I did the right things. I lived the right Christian life and all of it sucks. So where do we go from here, God? Either we are just completely done or we're going to have to find some new way to do faith because that isn't working for me anymore. Come running now, come running now. I need your shelter. 
Yeah, and that analogy that you just chose is literally the title of your book. I don't know if that's the genesis of the book, um, but it's been too long since I read your book, and I honestly didn't intend to email you until I did email you, so I didn't write questions while I read your book. Um, yeah, those I do with intentionality, but yeah, the title of the book is The View from Rock Bottom, which I will also say I went to Liberty, and so for those parents listening, sending your kids to a conservative Christian school even in private university or whatever, is not a guarantee that they don't realize that a slippery slope, like it is really exciting. Um, usually God gets bigger the closer you get to the bottom, at least for me, mm. and um, like a lot bigger, um, which is amazing. Um, yeah, I relate to so much, not of not having diagnosis and, and all that, but yeah, um, I also grew up in a very strict fundamentalist Baptist church, um, independent regular Baptist, quote unquote, is what oh. they're called. Yeah. Which is a different thing all, all Your together. IFB. They're, they're fun. They're they fun. They split off from CBA because <laughs> we weren't conservative enough for that. Yeah. True story. So that's, so that's, um, yeah, that's, that's, um, yeah, that's, that's my baggage. I won't, I won't go into my baggage. We're not talking about my baggage. Somebody else can talk about <laughs> my baggage. You touched on a couple of things there. You said, um, and you touched on it in your book as well from from what I can remember in the back of this Rolodex in my head that's squeaky <laughs> and needs WD-40. Um, you talk a lot about the prosperity gospel, but I think a lot of it is that attitude. And then I can tell you from working in a bank, I think... I don't think the prosperity gospel is quote unquote the gospel um, because I think people just live their lives. At least I see their debit card transactions attenuate of, I donated money to charity, so I should get the job. I did this to that, so I should get this. I did this for this, so life shouldn't suck. I've been tithing. Why does my my kid have cancer? Hmm. Can you talk a bit about the prosperity gospel? And I will say, I haven't talked about the prosperity gospel ever on this show, predominantly Hmm. because I get pissed off. (laughs) <laughs> Secondly, because my venue for ammunition is Joel Osteen, and he yeah. blocked me years ago. I didn't even know that he did um, on all the places, which really, uh, now I'm sad about it. Oh. But at first I was like, what did I say? If it makes you feel any better, Dave Ramsey blocked me on all the places. <laughs> yeah. I don't, I don't really follow Dave Ramsey because as a banker, what he teaches is although relatively, I don't want to get into finance, but relatively decently good advice, the way that he treats debt and sets people up to, if you don't follow this, it's basically like religion, the religion I grew up in. If you don't follow this rigid personification of success, your world will fall apart. Oh, Dave is steeped in prosperity gospel theology, right? Oh gosh, absolutely. Uh, if you didn't pick up on it, there's a chapter towards the end of my book where I talked about being gifted mm-hmm. in the beginning of the chapter. I talked about being vi- gifted a financial mm-hmm. guru class through the church. Like it was yeah. pretty obvious I was talking about Dave Ramsey, but yeah. for legal reasons, meaning he loves to sue anybody that uses his name. Can this stay in here? Is this one of those things that I have to get rid of? Oh, no, you can leave this in because, <laughs> okay. like I said, he's got me blocked on everything. He'll but uh, okay. there's no way we were going to publish his name in the mm. book. Like mm. that's, That is inviting a whole wealth of lawyers that nobody wants to do that. Uh, but I was clearly talking about Dave. Everybody knew that. Yeah. Um, I, I see prosperity gospel thinking all over his classes. And I say that because, you know, the gist of the beginning of the book in kind of trying to set the tone for what the prosperity gospel is, is understanding that Joel Austin, right? Like everybody looks at that example or the Creflo dollar, like everybody's got private plans and mansions and Paula White, right? If you tie the hundred, you'll get a thousand. And <laughs> that's obvious, like extreme prosperity gospel thinking, mm-hmm. but mainstream Christian faith is absolutely rampant with prosperity gospel thinking too. We just don't think that it counts. Because the bottom line is the prosperity gospel is really any sort of transactional view of God, right? So growing up in the kind of background we did, nobody ever told us, you know, we were going to be wealthy if we followed Jesus. But there certainly was a messaging of if you follow God and if you teach your kids the right things and they and they follow and they don't fall away from it you may not be wealthy but you're not going to be living under a bridge somewhere right, right. you're going to have two kids and a and a white picket fence and a and a job and you won't be on drugs and you won't have mental health issues and there was sort of a baseline minimum security you were guaranteed mm-hmm. as long as you follow the rules it's very contingent it's very pull yourself up by your bootstraps mentality right 
And that is the basis for all of Dave Ramsey's teachings is this idea of you decide and you control with your behavior, whether or not you are a person of wealth or whether you struggle financially. Dave has never remotely considered what it looks like for someone like me, right? My mortgage is about comparable right now to my health insurance premium. They're both about the same. Mm. I don't care how much money you're making. Almost nobody can afford that crap. Yeah. Like I'm not, I don't need better envelope system. Like it's, I'm not out here like, well, I guess we should cancel our gym membership. Mm. I don't have any of that stuff. <laughs> and I also am still in the red. Yeah. And Dave's, you know, Dave's answers for that are get a third and fourth job. Okay. Well, how about when you're in a body where I can't really get any kind of 40 hour a week job because I've tried, but I end up losing them three to six months later because I get sick too often Yeah. and that doesn't last and around and around that cycle go. He doesn't, he doesn't have any kind of framework for people other than sort of middle-class white able-bodied people who aren't experiencing any kind of systemic issues that can cause poverty, right? Mm -hmm. That's absolutely prosperity thinking. I have all these good things in my life because I earned them, because I followed the rules. And those people over there who are homeless or who are drug addicts or who are living in generational poverty, well, they have all the same opportunities that I do. They just need mm. to make good choices like me. That's prosperity thinking. Absolutely it is. Yeah. Well, I can also tell you on the back end, um, everyone that I've ever seen in financial struggles, maybe there's one out of 10 that legitimately just makes really bad decisions. Um, impulse buys. And yeah, I want it. I get it. I want it. I get it. I want it. Which is not wise for anyone. Um, most people, though, it's a medical emergency it's family emergency. It's one trip to the emergency room. But mm -hmm. if you're a family like mine, the fam, uh, the end. So they recently tweaked our insurance and we did the best that we could, but I'm not an economist. So I'm not really sure how to read this damn thing on what yeah. insurance to get. Um, and so now our prescription deductible per person is $900 for this year. And so, really? so far, and, and since my son has quite a bit of prescriptions so far, we've already spent like three grand in medical bills. And it's February 25th for those listening. Right. And that's just one person's prescriptions. Um, yeah. And then a few of mine. And God forbid we go to the hospital because I think it's like a $6,000 family deductible. Like it's, it, it's those things that send people into a spot because I see it every day. It's very rarely somebody that, that didn't do it. Right. Like even those impulse buy people, do you know, you know about the marshmallow test, that whole thing that people that talk is. about? Okay. Is that the so thing where you stick it in your mouth until you can't talk? No, at there's all? this really famous psychological experiment where they'd bring kids into a room, right? And they'd give them a marshmallow on a plate and they'd basically say, you can have this marshmallow right now, or if you can wait for five, 10 minutes, whatever the amount of time is, you can have two marshmallows. And then they'd leave the room and, and they'd set the, marshmallow. the timer. Right. And some of the kids would eat the marshmallow and some of the kids would wait because they wanted the other marshmallow. And for years, uh, and then they basically studied how these kids did in school and all these different things over the years. And for years, they held this up as like, see, like patience and these sort of good decision-making and learning how to sort of delay gratification is a really good benchmark for how successful people would be in life. But it took years for them to look back and go, wait a minute. This study was completely flawed on its head because they didn't remotely look into things like what kids were coming in there hungry. Yeah, yeah, starving. Right, with yeah. food insecurity. Or um, as someone who grew up in trauma, right, in the foster system before I was adopted, they didn't remotely consider that it's not really an issue of like, do you know how to be patient and choose not to buy these things right now? For many of us, it's if you grow up in an environment where everything is taken away from you, mm -hmm. where you are hurt by people who are supposed to take care of you constantly, your brain learns, why would I trust this person that they're going to give me a second marshmallow when they come back in the room? For all I know, they're going to take this one away and then I'm going to have no marshmallows. Yeah. I need to freaking eat this marshmallow right now as fast as I can before it gets taken away from me and I get hurt, Right. And so, again, it's that prosperity thinking of, oh, these are kids that were raised the right way that know how to delay gratification. No, for many of them, the reason that it was an indicator of how they would do in school later on was not because they were somehow, you know, choosing more patients or whatever. It was because for many of those kids that eat that marshmallow, 
their brain has been wired from the get-go to expect, take what you can get while you can get it because everything is going to get taken away from you. Everything's going to suck. It's that same prosperity thinking, right? It's easy to look at people who overspend and go, well, get your crap together. But for many of them, it's that same trauma wiring of if you don't do this now, you'll probably never get to do it. Hmm. You'll probably never have another chance again. So go out to dinner right now, go on that vacation, buy that thing, because for all you know, someone's going to lose their job tomorrow. Like PTSD does this to your brain. I relate to that feeling of if you don't do this now, you may never get to do it because everything's probably going to fall apart again any minute. So just buy the thing. You probably never have a chance again. I never considered that actually. Granted, I don't really ask people about that when they're at my desk either. So um, it would be weird if your bank did. Like you probably yeah. shouldn't ask people about why they do that spending. I mean, if they brought it up, I will. Uh, yeah, the most, the most hard conversation. So I had one of these conversations today. Of uh, a lady came in two days ago, actually asking, you know, I need to make sure stuff is right. I'm mom's power of attorney. It's not looking good. They don't know. It could be Friday. It could be three months. But it's probably not going to be three months. And um, so she came back in today. And just in tears, I was like, it's going to be okay. Here's what you're going to do. Um, and this is the most, I was like, tell me what happened, how it happened. Tell me the paperwork you have. And then you're going to go away for 10 days. I don't want to see you for 10 days. I will look at your account every day. I will make sure your mom's power bill and all that stuff got paid that needs to be paid. Just go do it. Wine, ice cream, chocolate, yeah. bath, all of that in the bath. I don't care. Go do what you need to do and come back in 10 days. And you could just see her going, oh, God. Thank the Lord. Unfortunately, I, I play that rodeo a couple of times a month, which is really sad. Yeah, but it's, it's a fact of life. Um, yeah, people that aren't in the business, they're like, that sounds morbid. But it is what it is. It, I mean, it is what it is. If, have you ever considered, are you ever, first off, do you ever go to Tennessee? And if so, I'm pretty sure you can just show up to the Ramsey Tower or whatever it is and say, I'm debt free and I like to come on and scream. And then just get up there and say something else altogether. Like, have you ever actually considered? <laughs> um, <laughs> I do my best. Like, I say some stuff about Dave, uh-huh. uh, which is why I'm blocked. <laughs> uh, I'm in a club full of, there are a bunch of women like me. Really? Oh, yeah. Daniel Mayfield's been blocked. Uh, Shannon Martin's been blocked. Like anybody that says anything critical with some teeth about Dave gets blocked. I'm going to have to. And the funny part is, none of us had like added him, right? Like we didn't tag him, which means, I don't know, like he must have somebody going through and like searching his name and just checking to see if you're saying negative stuff. Because we didn't at him. He just, I don't know, he blocked all of us. He doesn't. He doesn't like anybody saying anything negative huh. about Well, he's him. got a brand. He's got a brand. He does. So I probably would not come down there and draw <laughs> his ire any more than I need to because I was only half joking when I said like he's um, he's a little bit notorious for suing people for defamation. Huh. So you have to be careful about what criticism you say about him. Huh. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that stinks. I wouldn't draw any more attention from him than I have to. <laughs> fair enough. He's very wealthy and has a lot of lawyers. Yeah, fair enough. So can you talk a bit about fostering? So I didn't know that you were, or I didn't know that you were in the foster system. Can you talk a bit about, how long were you in the foster system? If, I if you're comfortable and if you're yeah, not, tell me I now. don't give tons of details about that period of my life because, um, it's very traumatic. Yeah. And um, I've only started talking about some of it in the last, like publicly talking about it in the last year or so. Um, I wasn't in the system um, and in terms of like going around from home to home or anything very long. Um, it, but it did take some time to get my adoption legalized. So I was technically in the foster system for a lot longer than I experienced it that way. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I... The short version is for the first three years of my life, I lived with my birth parents. Um, They had addiction issues Mm. and introduced me to a very unsafe environment. There was a lot of neglect. There was a lot of being an infant left alone for days. Um, And there was a lot of bringing a lot of unsafe people into our home and then not really supervising them because everybody was using drugs. So I was exposed to a lot of things in those first three lives and the first, those first three years of my life. And that, you know, that's a pivotal time of your brain being wired for how to experience the world and how to expect the world. 
And it's taken me years. I mean, it's really only been in the last few years that I've started to understand that a lot of what makes me tick is from those first three years. Hmm. Um, I had other traumatic things happen throughout the years. And so actually initially when I got my um, complex post-traumatic stress uh, diagnosis and I started trauma therapy, I went in convinced like, oh, it's, um, you know, I was sexually assaulted by someone in our church when I was a teenager. And I was like, it must really be having to do with that or the health issues or the years of financial struggles with being disabled and medical bills. And like, I had all of these things I wanted to talk about. (laughs) My therapist at the time kept wanting to talk about before I was adopted and being adopted. And it was like, I don't, I don't care about that. Like, why do we keep bringing this up? And it took me a long time to come to terms with the fact that that was really the root of where a majority of hmm. my trauma issues came from was when you are a child and you're completely dependent on your caregivers and those caregivers are responsible for both neglect and abuse, your your brain just sort of comes to expect that the world is a really unsafe place yeah, and that you are going to be harmed. And then when you ultimately are taken away from those caregivers because it doesn't matter that they were horrible to me. They were still my parents. So as a child, you still experience that loss, right? That disconnection from your, your family, they're just gone. Um, and I was old enough to, to be attached to them and know them and understand. Um, so you, you know, you go through that loss too. So it's it's compounded by the trauma of expecting that everyone's going to leave. That if you love anybody, they're going to get taken away from you or they're just going to leave you because you're not worth sticking around for essentially. Um, And so when you grow up with that, especially when you then compound it, and I'm able to see that now, when you compound it, a lot of the religious trauma of growing up in a system that said, first of all, um, you know, purity was the most important thing any woman could have. Hmm. So if you're a child who's experienced abuse, what what are you? Like damaged goods that no one's going to want, right? Or, you know, the family is the most important thing ever. And, you know, it's a very earning-based system all the way around. Like we may say salvation is by grace alone, but Lord knows we were raised to think everything else was works-based. Everything else. So, you know, it's this idea of nobody wanted you, your, your damaged goods, to come up in that, how how can you not be affected by that kind of trauma? Whether yeah. you want to acknowledge it or not doesn't matter. Your body's going to keep responding to those primal wounds. Thank you for that. I don't know how to dig in further from that, but I actually don't think that I knew any of that. Or yeah, so thank you for saying that, and we won't we won't dwell on that further. At least I'm not I'm not ultimately I'm not all that comfortable dwelling on that further. Um, so you've been on. 9,000 podcasts, I think, in the last seven <laughs> weeks. Um, just just from what iTunes tells me, because I just Googled your name and iTunes, or I don't know, can you, you can't Google and a, a name in iTunes. And a bunch of them that I've recorded actually haven't aired yet. Oh. I would say probably only two thirds of what I've recorded oh. has aired. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, and so that is the reason I haven't quoted your book back to you and asked you questions specifically around the book, because that is there and I want to know other things. So one thing, what have you learned about yourself as you've gone through 9,000 podcasts, like what is like, if you look back and you're like, Oh man, I didn't know that this, I keep bringing this up. And I didn't like, what have you learned about yourself through doing that? And I asked that because as one that does, so I, you'll be the third person I record this week. Um, I've learned so much about myself through the act of intentionally doing this, but Hmm. I'm curious what that is for you from the other end. That is a really good question. I'm sitting with that for a second. Um, well, first off, and this is kind of random, but um, part of my neurological issues disability-wise involves something called aphasia, okay. which means um, imagine you took French for years and years, right? And you're like practically near fluent. And then one day you decide to go out to a restaurant with your friends and you want to order in French and you know the word for chicken. It's right there, right? You're like, ah, oh, it's the thing, the, um, you know, the, uh, uh. And you can't quite connect the word to your mouth. Yeah. Um, now imagine that happening with your primary language. Huh. That's aphasia. Um, and that's something that I experience pretty regularly as a result of the, the damage from uh, Lyme disease that went untreated in my body for 15 years. Mm-hmm. But I also have ADHD. <laughs> so I experience a lot of these interviews. I've had this happen over and over again where we'll finish recording 
And I'll be like, oh my gosh, I am so sorry. I made no sense. I was so like <laughs> rambling and incoherent and it was terrible. And there's usually a period of silence on the other end. And they're like, I, I don't know what you're talking about right now. I'm very confused because I didn't experience that way at all. Mm. Um, and they'll tell me that I'm articulate and, and intelligent. And I'm going, that's not, that's not how I experience things. Um, and that's where ADHD becomes a superpower, right? Because my brain is like 12 sentences ahead of my mm -hmm. mouth. Mm -hmm. And so I may have really bad aphasia, but I have enough time to scramble in there and search for either the word or an alternate word or something. So by the time it comes out of my mouth, I feel very frantic, but people don't receive it that way. And so I've tried to force myself now to go back and listen to some of these interviews after the fact. And I'm always really surprised <laughs> because enough time passes usually when it airs, right? That you don't remember everything Correct. you said. I just remember feeling frantic and like I completely blew it. And then I listened to it and I'm like, well, that's a really good point. Wow. Wow. That is really like. I want to write that down. I said that. I'm impressed I that. <laughs> sometimes with myself, as horrible <laughs> as it sounds. And I'm kind of learning to let go a little bit. I'm. I'm not quite there yet, if I'm honest, of some of these fears that that I'm I'm not capable, right? Mm. Some of that imposter syndrome that says, wow, if people only knew, like you have no business being an author or a speaker or any of these things, your brain is a mess. You're an incoherent, rambling nightmare. It's been really interesting when you do so many shows in a row to go back and be like, I... I'm a lot more capable than I give myself credit for. Yeah. But that's hard for me to say even now. Like that's trauma brain, right? There's this part of my brain that's screaming, that was really stuck up. Everyone's going to hear that and they're going to think, whoa, you think too highly of yourself. It's really hard to deprogram that part of my brain that just wants to say, you're worthless. You're not enough. Nobody wants mm. you. So this has been an interesting process because I, I admit it. I like, I feel capable when I listen to some of these back. I'm not rambling and incoherent. I am a fairly talented speaker. I would agree. So I I've appreciated agree. that. Also, also talented writer as well. If, Thank uh, you. because if not, people wouldn't want to talk to you. And, uh, if people don't believe me, then they can just buy your book, which they should do anyway. Um, but probably not from Amazon, do it from like the Inglewood review of books or something. So you actually make some real money. Um, so I don't actually, I, I think that's how that works. That's what I've been told that not buying from Amazon, buying from a local book place usually yields you more money. I so. get the same royalty from my publisher wherever you buy it. Oh, it's that's based awful. on the price that you pay for it. So if you pay ah. full price, I make more money than when you buy it on sale. But huh. I get a percentage of each book sold based on how much you paid for it. Huh. Well, yeah, I theoretically would if I ever earn out the advance, which not everybody does. So. I don't even know what that means, earn out the advance. So, you know how um, writers will talk about getting an advance for their book? Okay. Yeah, I so one time had a writer tell me that's like signing an agreement with like um like with the Gestapo or not the, like with the mafia. <laughs> like write a book by March or we break your legs. Like well, you, you're going to write me a book. It, that's going to vary wildly. Like I had to take two extensions mm. on my book because my house was horrific. And because yeah. we almost lost our house at one point while writing the book. And I needed to focus on that. Yeah. Um. So it varies wildly. My publisher was really gracious about extending my deadlines a few times, but advance is literally called an advance because it's an advance on your royalties. Oh, uh, so they give you money up front and you got to sell yes. 11,000 books. And then after that, you get whatever the percentage is well, after 11,000 books. Well, it's not even a number of books. That'd be great because the price shifts constantly. It's literally a dollar amount. Oh. It's, we gave you this much as an advance. You got to earn and back that much. That is the only guaranteed money you will ever get. And because they're assuming a lot of risk too, right? Yeah. They're assuming more financial risk than I am. And so it's sort of the bare minimum number of this is what I can accept for doing all of this work, which I'll let you know up front is it's it's less than, you know, a year's salary. It's much less than most, a typical most year's salary. Most authors that I talk to don't write to make money. They write because they have something to say. Um, so yeah. yeah, which. So in theory, I'll make money off this book when people buy it, but only if I ever earn out the advance, which mm. right now I'm not on target to do, to be honest. Mm. I just found out in the last few weeks that I'm not on target to earn out the advance at this point. 
So if that ever happens, I'll make money when people buy the book. But mm. as of right now, I only want people to buy the book because I spent three years pouring yeah. myself out in in the most vulnerable of ways. Like this book is basically written in my tears. Mm. It is. It was quite the labor of love. Uh, so when I ask people to buy the book, it's really more that at this point, like I've just sort of come to terms with expecting to never see another cent from it. Like it's just not about the money for me anymore. I really just see this as ministry. Yeah. Well, it's, I, they should buy the book. Um, so you just buy it wherever it's easiest for you to buy it. Basically <laughs> <Fair enough. laughs> doesn't matter to me either way. Um, I know I'm holding you hostage from your family. And so I have one final question and then I will give you back to your husband and, and kiddos and, and please thank them for, for sharing you not only with me, but I'm aware of how my wife as kids as well are aware of how much time this, this takes. And you appear to be doing it way more often than I, I am. I mostly do it when they're at school, to be honest. Uh, <laughs> like, I, well, I try to do it when they're asleep, which is why it really works well that our time zones are so far different because this worked really well. Uh, well, at least for me, I hope it did for you. For but, you. Yeah. Yeah. My, <laughs> my husband and kids are out having dinner somewhere right now because well, I can't even have them in the house. When oh, I'm man. Doing oh, this. You should have them come in. It's fine. My dog and kids have interrupted so many episodes. It's fine. Um, so when, when, so the question I've been asking everyone predominantly, cause I'm talking to people of other faiths. Um, I want to know when you say the word God or divine or whatever metaphor you want to try to wrap around God, what are you actually trying to say? What are you intending to say when you say God Oof. is this? Tiny question. So feel free, collect Jeez. your, collect okay. all of your stuff. Like now that I'm like <laughs> fading fast and I'm getting into ready to go to bed mode. I'm yeah. like, wait, uh, yeah, let's end on a light note. Um, yeah. so as much as I've been through a lot of deconstruction and as much as I don't really connect to evangelicalism anymore or mm -hmm. evangelical as a label, um, I'm still head over heels in love with the Christian concept of God. Hmm. I'm head over heels in love with Jesus. I still have what is traditionally considered a quote unquote high view of scripture. Um, and that's such a weird dichotomy for me sometimes because I fall into this strange niche. And that's part of why my book sales are what they are, to be honest, is that I'm too liberal for most of my Christian friends. Mm. And I'm too Christian for a lot of progressive spaces. Mm. And so I'm in this interesting tension of, I still am head over heels in love with Jesus. And I'm still an almost daily Bible reader. I'd love to say daily, but that would be a lie. Um, <laughs> almost as a, good, I'm still a good qualifier. Pretty um, nerdy and 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 obsessed with it, and mm. not ready to give it up. And I've had other shows ask, like, "Hey, after some of the years of trauma and church-related trauma and things that you experienced, like, why?" What kept you? Like, what was the thing that helped yeah. you hold on to Jesus in faith? And I don't have a good answer for that still, even after like a dozen different shows asking that, because I don't know, like everything logically, when I look at it really objectively, there's no logical reason why I would still be in church. Honest to God, there's been a lot of hurt there. There are so many reasons to leave. And there are times that I feel like I almost wished I could leave. I tried out the uh, hashtag exvangelical movement for a while and it just never felt like home. I never fully felt like, like I have a Facebook group and I tried it out and I don't know, like there was something, I just was never quite willing to let it all go. Mm -hmm. So for me, God is still very much the traditional God of the Christian Bible. Um, I'm exploring a lot about Jewish faith right now because I found out um, a couple of years ago that uh, by birth heritage, I'm Jewish. Um, and if I hadn't been adopted, I would have been raised in the Jewish faith from the get-go. Um, and I'm trying to figure out what that looks like as a white, for all intents and purposes, white um, Christian woman, what it means to be culturally Jewish without sort of taking 
um, weird elements of faith that don't belong to me. Yeah. But um, I think that's expanding my view of who God is in a lot of ways as I try to figure out what I can incorporate without letting go of Jesus entirely. Um, but for the most part, it's, you know, the God of the Hebrew and Christian Bibles is still what I mean when I say God. I've tried to ditch him. Lord knows I've tried, but he's still there. <laughs> that works for me. I like it. I think and it, it kind of circles back to your your beginning question. I love when, when that happens, when things get bookended like that. Uh, I think the biggest change for me in the way I look at God now compared mm. to the way I experienced the God of the Bible growing up is that Growing up, there was this idea of like, if there's mystery there, if there's questions, like that's a really negative thing, right? That's a scary thing. It means you've lost touch with absolute truth and, and what yeah. we've told you. Yeah. Go back and re-memorize all this stuff. You need to know it inside out and backwards. And now it's been amazing to discover how much doubt and questions and mystery and not having answers to everything. I always thought that that would be the thing that killed my faith in God. It's it's really only expanded it in ways that I never expected. Like now, anytime I have questions that I can't answer or things I don't understand about God, this is going to sound like a cop-out, but I feel like that is so much more proof to me that God exists. And that more than that, he's not something that we just made up in human minds. Mm. Because if we made him up, Lord knows we would have made him way more like comprehensible and make way more sense yeah. than some of what's in there, right? Yeah. Now, every time I go, I don't have an answer for that. That doesn't make sense. I don't understand. I, I don't know. Like I just have this profound appreciation for mystery for me is such a huge component in, in seeing the divine as divine and not this sort of mental black and white easy answers bumper sticker responses have an answer for everyone garbage that i was raised on right yeah the more i go i don't know i can't really explain everything about him the more i sit back and go that's that's good like i take a lot of comfort in that yeah that's to me that's what i i agree wholeheartedly to me that's what makes god worth worshiping um yes like i i'm not like if i if I could fit him into the, if I could make an EULA agreement for God, like a, like an Apple iTunes agreement, and we'll call it that those are the rules of God, <laughs> what a crappy God that is. Um, but anyway, so point people to the places, Stephanie. Where do people go? Um, it, I'll have links to, to buy the book in, in the show notes. But outside of that, where would you send people to to engage with you? I know you have a Patreon, and so they should go there, click the button, and make that thing happen. Um, where would you send people to go? Where, where are the places? The main hub where you can find all my social media, my Patreon links to the book, the whole deal is stephanietatewrites.com. And Tate is T-A-I-T. That's my Canadian husband. Don't look at me. Um, <laughs> but stephanietatewrites.com really sort of has the connection jumping off points that'll take you to all the other stuff. Perfect. I will say that um, I have a lot on Facebook. I don't have like one of those professional pages. I tried that for a bit and I just couldn't maintain two things. I think I'm getting close to the friend limit ceiling on a personal page, though, so one? I may have to try that again. There is. They cap you out at 5,000. Oh. They really want you to get those business pages so they can uh. throttle your engagement ability and then go, well, we'll show you in more people's news feeds if you pay, if you us pay for, for it. that. Yeah. yeah. So they're trying to push you in that direction. So anytime you get to 5,000, they're like, well, you either need to go get a page so we can start charging you hmm. or... You just have to accept that this is the limit. But yeah, I, I have that Facebook. I do accept friend requests, you know, somewhat on my personal page, but there's also the option to just follow me. But um, really all my feistier opinions are over on Twitter anyway. So it's <laughs> yeah. the rough cuts, <laughs> the good stuff. Yeah, well, yeah, because you've only got a, a sentence and a half. On Facebook, you can give some context, but on Twitter, it's just burn it down or, or whatever yeah yeah well good good thank you so much for your time tonight oh thank you so upon editing and going back through and making this sound a little more manageable I found myself incensed again this is weeks after recording conversation with Stephanie 
about the ability that churches and houses of worship, I guess, have to just disregard people that don't fit into the mold by their own definitions of what's healthy. It just bothers me. It bothers me so much, and I don't even know how to fix it is the problem. And so I don't know what to do with that. I have no idea where to vent that frustration at, but I know it's wrong. So I'm thankful for voices like Stephanie's. I think that they're needed so, so much. Remember to rate and review the show. Very special thanks to Salt of the Sound again for their music in this episode. I cannot stress how helpful it has been to have them to fall back on to to mix into the show. So I hope every single one of you have a safe and blessed week. I'll talk with you next time.